Amoti lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, amotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Bore Pri Hagafen. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Uh, if you would uh, take your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 27. Put your finger there at verse 20. Uh, that's the beginning of our portion for this Sabbath. Our portion in the Hebrew is entitled Tetzaveh. And it comes from the phrase, and you shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. The, um, let me, before I go further into this portion, we are in the chapters now, um, after explaining how Israel, children of Israel came out of Egypt, we're now in the wilderness, and we're about the business of uh, building the tabernacle that was in the wilderness. Last uh, week's portion gave us a tremendous amount of instruction on the how the tabernacle was to be built, the materials that were to be used. And one of the things that I emphasized in that portion called Teruma was that for some reason God gave instructions on how the tabernacle was to be built from the inside out. Um, and that's not the normal way you would construct, say, a shelter or a building or uh, something out that you would build. You would, you would build a foundation, you would build the walls up, put the roof on it, and then you would put the internal things into it after you had built the basic structure of it. And what the Lord does in this case of building the tabernacle is almost the exact opposite. He starts with key things that are inside of it, builds those first, and kind of builds outward uh, from that way. And by the way, that pattern is completely consistent with the pattern of how we are spiritually built, how we spiritually mature. 
Uh, we do not spiritually mature by coming into the faith, and then we immediately, we go get a kippah, we immediately go get a talit, we, we immediately start, stop doing certain things and start doing other things, and that's how, that's how we come into it. No, no. In the faith, there has to be a change of your heart, and inside, you come to terms with the Savior and the Redeemer, and he begins to create within you a relationship with God. And then those other things, they work their kind of work their way out as you learn about them to where that then when, when there's a full package, when we see you and we observe that you are a believer uh, by your practices, by your walk of faith and so forth, we, we already believe that all of those internal things are really there that uh, you really do trust the Lord, You're, the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you, the tabernacle has been made within you, that the tablets of your heart have the commandments written on them like the new covenant says, and they're in the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, and, and all of those wonderful things are already well in place in your life. I think, uh, as I shared with you before, that God had great purpose in sharing about the building of the tabernacle and how it was set up uh, because it's the primary physical interface uh, that was between his people and himself, that he literally wanted to have a physical place he would dwell with his brethren. And you would recognize that he's dwelling with you and that you had a basis that you, you almost an anchor, if you will, a, a place that you hinged from that you knew where he was and, and you, took a, you built a relationship with him. And, and that's what he wanted to establish with the nation of Israel and with all of his people. Now, what the Messiah did when he came was he put a lot of emphasis on building that at a personal level with us. But we're still following the same pattern that God did when he established things in the covenant with Israel. He builds a tabernacle inside of us. He builds us from the inside out, just like he did before. And so the value of studying about the construction of the tabernacle is it explains a lot about what God's doing with us and how he's dealing with us, coming to terms with who we are and how we do that. Um, there is a, there's a corollary to that I want to mention just ever so briefly. Um, the greatest commandment of the Torah is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Now, if you take the average person and you say, now, explain to me, what is the heart, what is the soul, and what is your might? What, what is that? Uh, it's, uh, it's assumed that you would know enough about yourself that you would be able to distinguish between those different parts that have been missing. In other words, how does your heart work versus how does your soul work? And this gets a little confusing with a lot of folks. Uh, they, they get slurred back and forth. And then it's even worse uh, when uh, Paul talks about the, uh, us being in perfect unity with the Messiah, body, soul, and spirit. So now let's add the spirit into it. And how does that di differentiate from the body and, and all of this? And we've got all these different parts uh, that's supposed to define us, internal things about us. And we have a tendency to gloss over that and never quite get a 
a, a real understanding, what's inside of us? How, how do we really work? How does the spiritual part of our lives really work inside of us? Um, and add to the heart all of the emotions. Add to, you know, your strength, your might, the, the, your will. How, how does your will work in, in the faith? Um, and I could just continue to rattle off. Now, by the way, throughout the rest of the scriptures, we have specific commandments given to us about how our emotions are supposed to be handled, how our heart is supposed to be uh, guided, uh, how our soul is to respond, how we're to deal with the uh, spiritual things, how we're to deal with things of the world. Uh, for example, in the world, we're told that uh, we're not to follow after the things of the world, which are the appetites of your body, your ego, you know, overeating, sex, you know, not doing things, all of them that are lust, their appetites of life. And the Bible gives instruction on how those things are to be done. Specific commandments are given with regard to those, limits to those appetites. Then when it comes to spiritual things, we're supposed to be equipped to understand the spiritual world, spiritual gifts. Uh, we're supposed to be able to understand our emotions and our heart and how we're to be wholehearted for things, not half-hearted uh, for things. And most of the time, and this is a fact, most of the time I as a teacher, all I'm really influencing on you, exhorting you and encouraging you is trying to work with your will. Uh, I don't really go in and affect your spirit or change your appetites or change your emotions. I'm really, most of the time I go in and try to instruct you to have the will so that you'll have the soul and the intellect to choose to follow the commandments of the Lord and bring your emotions in line with that and, you know, say no to your wants and prefer your needs and build up the spiritual house in your life to, to allow the spirit man to take power and control in your life. So that when we come to the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Well, that makes sense. You understand how to keep that commandment, those internal things. Well, part of the journey of learning about internal things in us is to learn some internal things about the tabernacle. By following that pattern of learning those internal things and the power and how, what works and how they work, you suddenly get a kind of a model of how things are going to be working inside of you so that you can go in and make some adjustments. You can make some decisions about what kind of person you want to be. And that you allow God to develop you and perfect you and mature you spiritually um, in that regard. Great value and benefit in doing this study. And as I mentioned to you also last Shabbat, um, there's a great um, argument that's made by the sages of Israel that part of the, what God really wanted to do at Mount Sinai was he wanted to give the Spirit of God to every person. He wanted to dwell within every person. But because of the sin of the golden calf, we showed that we're not ready for that, that we are in much need of instruction uh, to understand things before that can really work for us. And so it was understood that we were going to build a temporary tabernacle after a pattern of things from heaven, but the Messiah would come and build the real tabernacle. Well, guess what? 
In the New Covenant, that's exactly what we teach. Paul comes teaching us, do you not know that when you become a believer in the Messiah, that you've become the temple of the living God, that he's created the temple within you. He's given you the actual indwelling Holy Spirit in your life. Now, with that said, we have just gone through the previous Torah portion, the construction of the basic elements of the tabernacle, the interior elements, the holy of holies, the holy place, uh, the sanctuaries, the curtains. The, you, we, we've got all the basic elements, and this portion immediately begins with these words. Let me read to them to you again. Verse 20, and you shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. In the tent of meaning, outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations for the sons of Israel. I want you to take note of something incredible that's just taking place. We're not talking about building anything anymore. We're talking about using the menorah. We're talking about bring the fuel for the menorah, the oil, so that it can be illuminated. So we're actually, to, you know, here we've got, the, we've got the tabernacle built, and the first thing he wants to do is, let's get the lamp working. Well, by the way, that's exactly what Yeshua wants to do with you when you become a believer. When you become a believer, and he builds this tabernacle, you know, the first thing he wants you to do is start following the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit begin to illuminate you because the Holy Spirit, what does it do? It teaches us. It illuminates our path. And one of the great um, things that is said of this, the, the, the essence is this. The reason why the sages say that the instruction was given to light the menorah first was because this is the light that you need to begin to learn what the Torah says. God has recorded his instructions. He's given his instructions. And the first thing he wants you to do is start putting the instructions of God into your light. Let it be a lamp to your feet to guide you as to how you should walk, how you should go. Now, that makes absolutely perfect sense. So it's very appropriate that the very first thing that, we, that Moses should be telling us about is the instructions how to light this lamp. Get this lamp. Now let me go into a little bit more detail for you. Actually, what would transpire was that the, the lamp was an oil lamp. And they would, uh, the, the lamp had little cups, you know, at the top. And they would put oil into it, and there was a little edge in which they would set the wick. And the wick would lay into the oil and extend out of the oil. And so when they would trim the lamp, they would put the wick at the proper place. So when they would light the wick, uh, the fuel-air mixture that was supported by the wick would illuminate, and you would have the flame, you'd have the fire, and that would produce the light. And now you had a system that was a passive feeding system. In other words, the wick would continue to draw the oil up the wick and continue to feed the fuel in the fire, and the fire would continue to just take the oil out of that cup and continue to work with it. And the way it usually worked 
was they would light the lamp uh, before the darkness, and it would burn all night in the holy place, illuminating inside there, and it would still be there the next morning, and that the priest, one of the priestly duties was to come in, and they would trim the lamps again. They would clean the lamps, put new wicks in, put new fresh oil in, get it all ready to go, so that when they get ready for the evening service, they would light the menorah again, and the menorah would stay lit all through the night. If you remember the famous Hanukkah story, um, they only had enough oil for one day. They only had enough fuel for the cups for one day, and they trimmed it, they burned it, but for some reason it burned for eight days continuously. A great miracle happened there. That's part of the teaching and the legend that we say about Hanukkah. And so we have a Hanukkah, which is a lamp, but it has the, the eight days displayed with a servant candle the Shamash, and so you have a nine candelabrium for Hanukkah telling the story of how that lamp. Now, normally the lamp is not supposed to be able to hold fuel for that number of days. Uh, it was designed where it would only hold enough fuel for basically one day, and it would maintain uh, the lamp for that, and each day the priest would have to go in. And if you'll note, that's part of the instruction here uh, that we have here. It says... Um, Verse 21, in the tent of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and sons shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord, and it shall be a perpetual statute throughout their generations. In the evening they would light it, in the morning they would trim it and clean it and get it ready to be lit when darkness would get ready to appear. So there was an evening and a morning activity that was done with the menorah by the priests every day. And every day they had to go in and trim that menorah and get that menorah ready to be illuminated. So it was the light that was inside of the temple. The same thing is true about us and spiritually how we go about our faith. Uh, no one spiritually has been successful of getting to know the Lord uh, doing a full intensive study of the scriptures for one year, stop studying the scripture, stop doing anything related to the faith, and we go off and we operate and we're just like a mature believer. It doesn't work that way. It requires you to daily walk out your faith. Every day, you either are headed in the direction where you're following and walking with the Lord, or every day you're walking in a different direction from the Lord. You're either walking toward him or walking away from him. You're either climbing the hill or you're backsliding, one of the two. You cannot stand still. You cannot hold. You've got to be moving forward uh, to do that with the Lord. And it's like the perpetual nature of the lighting of the menorah in the temple. Every day, you have to go in there and trim your wick and get that light going so that you can continue to grow and learn and, uh, about what's going on. If you, if you decide... Well, I don't need to spiritually grow. I don't need the lamp in my life. You will cease to learn. You will not learn things in the future. You'll be going a different direction. In fact, you'll be walking in darkness. And you know, of course, all the spiritual themes of walking in the light versus walking in the darkness. Those are prevailing spiritual themes. Now, that may be an oversimplification for some about the value of lighting in the menorah, but you would be hard-pressed uh, to uh, come up with a better explanation for why this commandment has been given. This is how we walk out the faith, just like the way the priest tendered and took care of the menorah in the tabernacle.
Now, we, that's just a couple of quick verses in our portion because the rest of our portion is now going to shift gears and start talking about the priestly garments. Chapter 28 begins and says, Then bring near to yourself Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among his sons of Israel to minister as priests to me, Aaron, Nadav, Avihu, Eliezer, Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And if you recall, at this point, Aaron had four sons. Nadav and Avihu are going to be part of another story where they are going to die in the near future because of something inappropriate they will do as priests, literally at the ordination of them becoming priests. But at this moment, the instruction is being given for all of his sons to come forth for Aaron and for his sons to become the priests. Now, Aaron and his sons are part of the tribe of uh, Levi. And um, the tribe of Levi was charged with uh, having the responsibilities of taking care of the tabernacle and the temple, the temple service. But the priests were only to be the sons of Aaron, only from Aaron. And though they were the Kohen, they were the priests of Israel. But the rest of the tribe of Levi would become the guards, the captains. They would transport the tabernacle. Uh, they would do the other things. And Levi, the whole tribe, was set aside unto the Lord. That was referred to as the Lord's portion instead of the firstborn from all of the different tribes. So he calls for all of his sons to come forth. Verse 2, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. There's uh, quite a bit of commentary about this, about why uh, this was to be done. Um, and it really speaks to the, the, the nature of us as, as human beings. And it's really something that goes all the way back to the garden. In the garden, if you recall, um, man didn't know he was naked until he had sinned. Now, they didn't have a problem gallivanting around there in their birthday suit in the Garden of Eden. It was only after they sinned, suddenly they saw their nakedness, and now they felt shame, and there was dishonor. And if you recall, before God moved them out of the garden, God himself provided the skins of some animals, made a covering for them. And from that day to this day, it is a very common human understanding that if you are not clothed, if your skin is being shown and is available for view by other people, it represents a couple of very basic things to us. Uh, one, that there is some element of shame in doing that. There's, a, there's an automatic shame. It's, we equate nakedness with misbehavior. In fact, when the Lord talks about all of the sexual sins and their inappropriateness, he refers to their nakedness. You know, because most people, when they have those kind of sexual encounters, they take their clothes off. Um, so, the, so right off the bat, here we are just as natural as can be, but we also recognize that if we take all our clothes off, well, you're crazy. Uh, that's, that's a shameful thing because it dates back to the garden. All right? And that we've also learned that as you attire yourself... 
that you can attire yourself in, in a casual form and you make a statement about yourself as to how you attire yourself. If you, if you wear fine clothes and so forth, that also speaks to who you are. When I was in the business world, uh, there was a book that I read uh, that I took to heart. It says, Dress for Success. And even though my workmates um, were just wearing a casual polo shirt and jeans to work, I wore a pair of slacks, I wore a dress shirt, and I wore a tie. I got promoted before they did. And they had higher academic credentials than me. When I got into the management position, I paid attention to my attire. I wanted to dress the part. I didn't want my management or my bosses to be embarrassed by my appearance. I wanted them to feel completely comfortable with working in my presence, me to feel comfortable working with them in front of our customers. And there were many appropriate times when, and in fact, at the height of my career, I'll just briefly mention this to you, in my office where I was at, in my desk drawer, I had two clean ties, in case I got lunch on one, which, by the way, I don't wear ties anymore because... I just get lunch on everything. Um, and I used to have a, a fresh, pressed, clean shirt in the box that had come from the cleaners. If at any time I spilled on a shirt, whatever, I could go in, pull that fresh shirt out, put that fresh shirt on so that I looked clean and crisp and fresh, you know, good clean tie, and so I looked the part, okay? And it was the honorable thing to do. It was an issue of honor. It was an issue of dignity. It was an issue of looking the part of who you really are. And those guys who, you know, were kind of anti-establishment, those guys that came out of my generation of being just a slight version of a hippie, you know, who thought that they could wear, you know, righteous jeans. Those are holes in your jeans, holy, holy jeans. Uh, or some beat-up tennis shoe on their feet, and then go in and try to act like a professional and expect everybody to treat them as a professional, they just didn't. They just didn't do it because you don't look the part. And you're completely contrary. And by the way, we don't want to display you in front of our customers who also are honorable people. And I saw a lot of guys with great qualifications who did not get promoted because they just didn't understand this simple principle. Um, those who are skilled and those who've gone on, they've learned these principles. They've learned these things. It used to be in this nation that you didn't dare go to a church without being dressed up and having your Sunday best. That the attitude was you were doing that not to impress other people, but you just didn't want to go before God and look dumb and look slovenly or look like a bum. And by the way, in my father, you, you know, and other fathers, if you didn't dress appropriately, you look like a bum. Well, you know, you really can't tell the difference much between your average citizen and a homeless man anymore, except for the one guy's got a shopping cart or something, and you're outside the grocery store. Oh, that must be a homeless person, because you see the other guy walking down the street, he looks just as like he's dressed to be a homeless guy as much as the other guy is. The idea of, of people, how they groom themselves, how they present their persons. Um, and it's very clear that God started this idea that instead of presenting yourself in a shameful fashion, in an embarrassing fashion, that you should cover yourself appropriately. 
By the way, there's a great spiritual lesson there. If you don't get the right covering, you are not going to make it into the kingdom. If you don't have a covering for your sins, for your shame and your embarrassment, if you don't get a covering from the Lord that covers that, you're not making it in. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but all the people that will be in hell, they'll be naked. They won't have any covering on. They will be there naked. But we who will be in the kingdom will have garments of honor. In fact, our garments are referred, regarded as uh, the robes of righteousness. That's the attire that we will wear. And in fact, part of our journey in growing in the faith is to learn how to acquire robes of righteousness. Um, as you know, in our culture today, well, the issue of what you wear to attire and so forth has shifted dramatically in one generation. And I can tell you why. Because this generation that we're in today, they almost celebrate shame and sin. They celebrate it. They flaunt sin. It used to be, uh, even when I was in the business world, that the most shameful thing that you could hear about a man in the business world where I was a professional was that there was any sexual impropriety on their part. As a matter of fact, the shame of him committing adultery could probably cost him his job. Now today, it's like a badge of honor. And if you haven't done it or are not part of it, it's like, you know, well, what's wrong with you? And if you have a testimony of being honorable, fidelity in your marriage and so forth, they look down their noses at you like, what's wrong with you? And part of that is because now we have, uh, we flaunt the homosexual agenda. And the homosexual agenda, they've turned it around to where that if you admit you're a homosexual and you go sleeping around with men, well, then that's a good thing. That's an honorable thing. That, or women on women or whatever the case may be. And, and it's no big deal that you're going around uh, uh, having affairs. And there doesn't seem to be any consequences to those things anymore. There's no more shame and dishonor from such things. And what it is, they're flaunting their spiritual nakedness. And they are naked before the Lord. <laughs> uh, because of that. The, um, the warning that Yeshua gives to the last church, the, the church of Laodicea. He's warning the people. He said, don't you know you're naked you're, you're not attired in honor. You're doing things that are dishonorable to yourselves uh, constantly in that. Now that, the reason I shared that with you is because that's what sets this definition of what God is going to give and why that we have so much detailed instructions about how the high priest is to be attired. He says right here for it, you shall make holy garments for Aaron, for your brother, for glory and for beauty. And that's what a garment does for you. A garment, it, it, it presents you in an honorable way. It presents you in a very special way. It, it, it's for honor and so forth. Listen, every one of us, if you see a military man that comes in his uniform, his dress uniform, with his salad bowl 
you know, of his, of his medals. He has won with all of the regalia that's associated with either the military service or the military unit or the different kinds of jobs that he does. And you see the way the uniform is arrayed. It is done so that he looks dignified, honored, and there is great glory in this. And we're impressed by it. We are. We're moved by the uniform. And when you see a, a, a man who comes in who has been spent some time in the military, he's got a lot to show for it. His, his, his life is displayed uh, in the manner of his uniform and the decor that's associated with his uniform. It reminds me about when I was, uh, I'd been about 10 years in the Navy. By the way, I did 10 years active duty. And I was about at that point. I happened to be back in my hometown, saw some of my cousins, and at that point, having been 10 years in the Navy in Vietnam, three different war cruises and so forth, so I had several rows of medals, you know, up on my chest. And I remember one of my cousins looked at me and saw all the regalia and the whole fourth of my uniform and knew that that represented medals and awards and other things. And uh, she said to me, she said, now what, what did you do to, to get all of those? And in the reality, I said, about 10 years, you know. <laughs> It's about what it takes. <laughs> and I didn't have to go into the details of what the different awards were. It's, this is what comes with you serving and doing honorable things like that. These are the natural accoutrements that come with your attire and your appearance. Uh, as you work your way up in ranks, uh, you know, the, the colors even of your stripes go from red to gold. Uh, that, uh, uh, that each of the military branches has a different way of displaying it. The badge that they wear, uh, designated the different, those are done with great design in them. There's great thought that is put into each one of those so that amongst one another we can see who you are and what you do as a part of that in your attire, your outward attire presents that. And when a military man gets dressed up in his dress uniform, uh, and he's been in for a while, it is something to behold. It is something to behold. And you, anytime he walks in the room, you know, with you, you are going to be dealing with a highly dignified environment for that. I mention that because that's a, that's a real common example all we did. That was what was being achieved by this attire for the high priest. The high priest was a man just like the rest of us. He was a son of Aaron. He was a descendant. He was one of the sons of Israel. But with this attire on, he represented something much greater than just him. He represented the things of God as an emissary of God between us and, and, and that he had functions and work to do that were honored and dignified and very, very uh, specialized as to what he did. And he was highly respected. Uh, he, uh, in the course of this attire, I'm not going to go into all of it because it's, it's very long to read, but if you go down through here, it talks about his basic garments that adorned him. It talked about a girdle that came around him, a tunic that he wore, a breast piece place. They actually had a, a, a paneled breast piece that was made that had gold thread woven into it. And there were precious stones. There were 12 stones 
precious gemstones that have been polished and, and mounted in it, representing the, the tribes of Israel, that he represented all of the tribes of Israel. And it had a harness that sat up over his shoulders and where he bore a representation of all of the tribes of Israel. And it goes all the way down to the bottom of his garments that it was woven in that there were little bells that looked like little pomegranates that were walked around. Even his motion of walking about, there was this tingling sound. There was so, so it was like whenever he moved, not only did you see him, and it was impressive to see his person because of his outward attire, but there was, there was a sound that even announced him coming. You know, the soft tingling of these little bells and so forth. And you knew the high priest was coming. You heard these bells. You knew it was the high priest. It, in the military, when an officer walks into a space or a deck, somebody will shout out, attention on deck. And everybody on deck pops tall. And if it's the captain of the ship, everybody comes to attention. Everybody gives attention to who that person is when they come in. And in a sense, that's what would happen with these tingling bells. It would send the signal that every one of the sons of Israel immediately was to pop tall and give attention to high priests now come into their midst. What does the high priest want to do? How does he want to do it? We're here to support. And we give attention to this. And so all of that, uh, all of that attire was built so that at the first instance you see him, you immediately are commanded to give respect and dignity and honor. And, and he was a representative of the Lord, how the Lord had made his dwelling place with us, and that you gave the same attention and, to him as you would give to the Lord if the Lord was there to speak to you, because he was the representative. He was the intermediary between you and the Lord. Uh, he had a, a, had a different type of uh, hat, it was called a mitre, and a mitre was like a wrapped uh, thing that would completely cover his head, but it was, it was kind of like a crown is really what it was. It was, a, it was a crown that was made, and across the front on the forehead, there was a gold plate that would fit on this mitre, and in the Hebrew, it said, holy to the Lord, and that was tied off. And so, unlike any other priest, you would see him, when you saw his face, you had staring right in front of you is this gold plate right over the top of his eyes that says, holy to the Lord. And the whole idea was everything that is here set is completely set apart unto the Lord. This is not common to a man. This has been completely sanctified, set apart, made special. Uh, and so that you saw glory and beauty and honor were all embodied in this one person. I have some news for people. Um, when Yeshua shows up, when the world gets to see him the next time he shows up, he will be wearing garments of glory and beauty. It will command their immediate attention. Uh, in fact, they'll be speechless. And part of that has been foreshadowed for us by the instructions of how the high priest it was to teach us how to be prepared to have an intimate relationship with God, with our king. How to behave, to know the protocol of how to come before the king. On that mention, let me just add this additional statement about the pattern of the tabernacle that we're looking at. The way you would enter the tabernacle, and by the way, there's another portion coming up that will emphasize this greatly. 
The way you enter the tabernacle is you don't actually walk into the tabernacle in the first outer court. You're greeted by a priest first. A priest, another person who's attired properly, they're the ones who literally are like the gatekeeper. They're the ones who actually issue you the welcome. They're the ones who actually guide you in. And you would walk in, and the first thing that you would see in the tabernacle is you would see the laver for washing, and you would see a great fire altar where sacrifices were presented. God's substitutionary system. If you were able to get past that, you went into the first sanctuary, and the first thing you saw was the, the menorah on the left, the table showbread on the right, the veil directly in front of you, which is, has the mercy seat behind it, and then there would be this... Um, uh, golden altar of incense. In understanding the tabernacle, um, you're learning how to worship the Lord, learning how to come into his presence. And by the way, for you to truly come into the presence of God, guess who you have to really meet first? A high priest. In our case, it's Yeshua of Nazareth, who is our high priest of the faith. And he is the high priest of this tabernacle in here. We have to come to terms with him first. Then he explains, you know, the labor of how we clean ourselves and appropriate ourselves, make ourselves appropriate. By the way, if you put a new clean outfit on, I bet you take a bath first. It's what I always do. I'm going to put some new clean clothes on. I take a bath first. And then I attire myself correctly. And in the case of um, the great altar, you see the substitution. You recognize the sacrifice. You recognize God's redemption provided for you. Now you get to enter in. What's the first thing you see? The menorah. Why do you see that? Because it's the light. And it's what illuminates everything else. So you have to deal with the menorah first, the light, to learn. And then you recognize what the, how, how man lives. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Your prayers, the golden altar of incense, the veil, you're approaching God's mercy seat, appealing for his mercy for your life. And you're literally in the midst of the presence of God. That same way we walk into the tabernacle is the same way we come to faith to know the Lord. And by the way, it's the same way we worship the Lord when we come as a community to worship the Lord. You ever noticed how one of the first things we do is we sing songs? Well, isn't that interesting? The psalmist says, enter his courts with thanksgiving and praise. Enter into the courts first by offering praise to him, singing and praise. And if you would have gone to the temple or into the tabernacle, as soon as you got introduced to the priest who brought you in, the first thing you noticed was there were priests off there singing the psalms. That there was this constant worship of the Lord as you came in. And that bathed you the whole time uh, you were in there. And prayers going up before God at all times. That's, that's how we do business uh, with God. It's modeled for us. It's pictured for us in the work of the tabernacle. But going back to what this portion emphasizes, it emphasizes this detailed attire of the high priest. Now, I've, I've gone through a lot of different studies uh, on this, and I've read studies that have been done by others, and there's a lot of studies that go into the exacting detail of exactly how many items there were here and the stones that were used and, and trying to draw out a, 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 a meaning here um, for every little thing. Um, I will be real honest with you. Uh, 
some of it was kind of interesting, uh, but most of it, 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 it hit me as, I think we're missing the point here, guys. We're getting so, you know, it's like we're, we're examining the trees so much that we lost sight of the forest. Um, and because there's an incredible forest here to deal with. And it has to do, as I've been sharing with you, the attire of the high priest. It has to do with something about us. We need to be attired. We need to have a covering. And he has a covering that is with glory and beauty. And he wants us to have a covering of glory and beauty. Uh, consider for the moment the customs that we have of preparing for a wedding. The bride, of course, is going to be attired in a dress that will probably take in literally weeks and months to acquire. Uh, it has to be selected. It has to be purchased. It has to be trimmed and altered to fit for her perfectly. Then there's all the bridesmaids' dresses, you know, that have to be designed and, and set up for that. Uh, and by the way, these are usually expensive for people who are participating in the wedding. And then the gentlemen who are part of the wedding party, they, they get the tuxedo. And like most guys, when they go down to the tuxedo shop, they're looking at all these different things and they're completely out of place. Like, I, I don't know what all this stuff is for. Why do you need that, those things that go over the buttons and all this? I don't know how to tie a bow tie, blah, blah, blah. You know, the whole thing. But you wouldn't dare go to that wedding without that stuff. And to go and not have it would be considered offensive. And in fact, um, it's in our culture today, and since I've been a part of a few weddings, I can remember a lot of conversation after the wedding was over and done with and the party was done and all this kind of stuff. You know what most people were talking about? What so-and-so didn't wear or what they wore and thought was appropriate to come to a wedding. I can't believe so-and-so showed up in a pair of jeans. That's the kind of conversation that goes on. It's ingrained within us. It originates from man coming out of the garden. You need to be properly attired based on the situation you're in. And at a wedding, which is probably the most sophisticated uh, social event that most of us will have in our lives today, there is an expectation, a natural expectation, that you're going to put on not only your Sunday best, you're going to put on your attire that's fitting for a wedding. Do you remember the parable that the Lord talked about the people being invited to a wedding that he's going to hold? Do you remember he uh, invited certain people and they didn't come, and then he invited some other people and they showed up and they weren't attired for the wedding? And they were cast out. They went, even the Lord talks about the proper attire for a wedding. Um, because a wedding, of course, is a great um, spiritual symbol over the relationship between God and his people. Uh, a wedding. In fact, isn't that what we're supposed to do when we first get to the kingdom? We're supposed to have the wedding of the Lamb? Well, you might ask yourself, what sort of attire are you preparing for the wedding? And it's not like you can go down to Walmart and pick up a couple items for this. Or you can go over to uh, one of the other clothing stores and so forth. That's not the kind of clothing that we're looking at as the proper attire for this. The scripture refers to as robes of righteousness. 
and we put off the other things, the unclean things, and we put on something that's honorable and something that is um, that has glory and beauty to it. That's the one thing that I think we should come away with when we look at the instructions. Um, is that we should remember that if you could visualize what this high priest would look like when he would stand with his attire on, he would be a very impressive figure. He would command your very specific attention to the matters of what he is doing. And I believe that that's the way a righteous person should be. That they should attire themselves in, clo in, in clothing of righteousness. And it will command the attention of others around you. Um, how, do we, how do we get robes of righteousness? Well, it's kind of the same way that we go about the process of going into the tabernacle or trimming the lamp on the menorah. Something that we have to do on a daily basis. Every day we get up, we bathe, we put clothes on. And we make decisions. What kind of clothes am I going to wear today? How shall I tire myself? And you can make those same kinds of decisions about how you want to present yourself before the Lord and before your brethren, you know, for it. Uh, and be mindful of the fact that we live in a society today that doesn't want to follow those rules. They don't want to follow that code, that, that, uh, that kind of honor. Um, you know, one of the things at Camp Yeshua, we're having to teach the young ladies is to attire themselves in a modest way. We have to teach guys to pull your pants up. I don't want to see your plaid underwear. You know, it's not, it doesn't look good for you. Oh, it's cool amongst us guys. No, it's, it's not cool. It's stupid. It's completely contrary to everything in your faith. You will not be doing this as a 30-year-old man, and you will not be able to provide for your families if you attire yourself and try to go get a job. You know, it's a phase you're in of rebellion. It's a phase you're in being contrary to the things you even know within your own spirit and soul that are right. But right now, it's fashionable and fun to do that. Actually, it's not. It's not fashionable, and it's not fun. And the Bible will tell you flat out that nakedness is a shame. And by the way, if you want, to, if I, if you want some proof on that, just take your clothes off right now and just prove it to me that you're not ashamed. Uh, nobody's going to take that challenge because they know that's what it means. That's what it means. And so that's part of the instruction that we get here of that which is glory and is um, honorable uh, to the Lord. The, um, all of this leads to the serving of the Lord uh, that will be done to uh, do the things that we do uh, before the Lord using the temple for it. Um, let me go just a little bit deeper here, and I want you to take note of one of the last things it does. And whereas there's the daily business of lighting the menorah, the daily business of attiring yourself, and there's another daily thing that was done in the temple that's specifically addressed. And I don't want to miss this one. This is in chapter um, 29, and it begins um, at verse 38. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar, two one-year lambs each day continuously. The one lamb shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And there shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of beaten oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine for a libation with one lamb. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. 
and shall offer with it the same grain offering as the morning and the same libation for a soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak with you there. And this was what's called was the daily sacrifice, the evening and morning lambs. Actually, the way this was set up was the priest would render this service and a morning lamb would be put on the altar with the, with the oil, with the meal offering, and with the libation of wine. And that was the first thing that would go on the altar before anybody would bring any other sacrifice in. At the end of the day, and actually when it talks about the twilight, we're talking about about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The last sacrifice that would go on wouldn't be one that came from somebody he just fitted it in. No, the last one would be the priestly offering of another lamb, the evening lamb. Again, the same offering as was made in the morning. And those two offerings, the, the morning and evening lamb, they would encase all of the gifts and all the offerings that had been brought by the children of Israel within that day. And this was done every day. And in fact, you couldn't present an offering on the altar on any day unless the morning offering had already been done first. And your offering could not be the last one on the altar. There had to be the evening sacrifice even after yours. The Lord said that if there's any interruption in the two of those, either the morning offering is not given, evening offering is not given, that altar ceases to be an altar to him. It gets taken down. You have to build a new altar. You have to dedicate a new order, ordain it before it can be used for the Lord. That the Lord said, this is the way it shall be done. And in fact, the final words there, verse 43, I will meet there with the sons of Israel and shall be consecrated by my glory. And I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. And I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests. For I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. That the symbol, the daily reminder that God is there daily with us was, was enacted out in this service. Why? Because God is basically saying, I set this altar, this table up, to do business with the sons of Israel. But when you come to my table, the Lord is saying, there already is meat, there's already drink, and there's already bread on the table ready to do business. Now you go ahead and bring your gift you'd like to add to it, but these things already exist. I've already shown you invitation, and I'm showing you hospitality, and I'm ready to receive you. That's a very powerful thing for us. It's one thing for us to petition and appeal to the Lord, but how would you like to do it? Oh, the Lord's already set the table for you. He's already got the table set. Come on in. But now that changes your disposition a little bit about how do I want to appeal. The Lord is already welcoming me in, and he, he has a place at the table for me. Now you know how to be treated. That's the way you want God to treat you. By the way, He'd like you to learn how to do that so you can do that for others too. To show that kind of hospitality, to show that kind of relationship. We call it table fellowship. You know, when you invite friends over to your house, I bet you set your table in a special way. I bet it's not like normal lunch with me and the hubby. 
No, it's set a little differently. It's set up to, so that it shows hospitality, honor, dignity. You know, might even get dressed for dinner to go along with it. Might even kind of freshen things up and maybe even light some candles, you know, in the house so it looks nice, you know. Fresh flowers, you know, a couple of nice things, you know. So it's all very pleasant and so it's dignified, honorable, wholesome, good. Those are the things the Lord is seeking with us and for us. Amen? All right. Uh, Let me just say, the start of the Great Tribulation is when we breach the daily sacrifice. When we breach that, coming up very shortly, that's day one of the Great Tribulation. All those other things about dignified things, those will all have been breached as well beforehand as too. So it'll be time for judgment then. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the instruction of the tabernacle, the instruction of the garments for the high priest. We thank you for uh, commandments. And we thank you, Lord, for your many, many uh, instructions that you give to us. And we ask, Lord, that you would use those to transform us, that you would light the lamp, uh, the light of the lamp, that you would cause us, Lord, to increase in our understanding of our faith, and that you would lead us on the path uh, that leads us toward righteousness, and that we, too, would learn how to don robes of righteousness and appear appropriate before you with honor and glory and beauty. We ask all of this in Yeshua's name. Amen. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.